Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 75, three quarters of a way to 100. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on D-Day, June 6th, 2022, in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. This episode is the second in our series on the road to Plymouth, John Smith's invention of New England. My muse went a little ADD in the writing of it, though, so we take several frolics and detours, including an actual new item concerning Sir Francis Drake. Sometimes I can't help myself. First off, the podcast schedule is going to be goofy for the next couple of months because I have a long run of commitments in the middle of the week this summer which is when I would be writing, recording, and editing the week's episode if it were coming out on Thursday or Friday. I do expect a fairly normal number of episodes, around four a month. But as things look, they will come out at irregular intervals for much of the summer. I will be doing a bunch of fun stuff, however, including attending the Heterodox Conference in Denver next week and a convention in Vegas in mid-July. I might even record an episode in Vegas, a city in need of more history if ever there were one. I'll try to keep people informed on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast, so follow along on either of those toxic websites for updates. Emails from listeners are always, or at least almost always, fun for me, and they keep me on the straight and narrow. Listener Ryan from Oregon helpfully corrected my pronunciation of Willamette, pointing out that He was nipping a future problem in the bud, since I'll have to say we'll lamb it a lot when we get to the early history of the Pacific Northwest. I also have a recommendation. As you can imagine, I don't have a lot of time for reading stuff that's not germane to a forthcoming episode. But I do want to suggest that as many of you as possible read Free Speech, a history from Socrates to social media by Jacob Machangama. It really is fantastic. A history of the very idea of free speech, how it has waxed and waned over many centuries, the ancient tendency of elites to panic over speech they don't like, and the free speech recession of our present day. One of the great things about Machango's book is that it will challenge the political priors of almost everyone with an opinion on the subject. That is usually the mark of a book worth reading. Here's a short excerpt on the introduction of new communication technologies. Quote, Few individuals have done as much to change the course of history as the industrious goldsmith Johann Gutenberg did when he invented a technique for mass-producing books around 1450. From Gutenberg's workshop in Mainz, the printing press spread nearly as quickly as the books it churned out. The number of printing workshops exploded from a mere four in 1462 to a whopping 1,700 in 1500, opening up everywhere from Lisbon to Krakow and from Stockholm to Casenza in southern Italy. European colonizers brought the printing press with them to the New World in the 1530s and to the Far East in the 1580s. European printers produced around 13 million books between 1454 and 1500. In other words, they printed more books in 46 years than the scribes of Western Europe had produced in a millennium. And that was only the beginning. 
Production increased to around 80 million books from 1501 to 1550 and jumped to more than 138 million from 1551 to 1600. As the production of books soared, their price dropped exponentially. In 1424, a manuscript had been worth as much as a farm or a vineyard, which explains why books and cathedral libraries were locked up with chains. By the 1530s, a century and a Gutenberg revolution later, a pamphlet cost the same as a loaf of bread. Skipping a bit on rising literacy rates and population growth in the most literate cities and stuff like that. Now back to Machangama. Yet most disruptive technologies bring costs as well as benefits. Printing presses may have eased communication and dissemination of learning, but they also churned out a steady stream of virulent political and religious propaganda, hate speech, obscene cartoons, and treatises on witchcraft and alchemy. More fundamentally, new ideas spread by printing presses called into question the very assumptions about knowledge, religion, and authority upon which the social order of Europe was based. By 1525, Erasmus had lost faith in the new technology and complained that printers fill the world with pamphlets and books, foolish, ignorant, malignant, libelous, mad, impious, and subversive. And such is the flood that even things that might have done some good lose all their goodness. The printing press also allowed moral panics to go viral, with consequences that were vastly more deadly than those of 21st century Twitter mobs. The Malleus Malefactorum, or Hammer of Witches, fanned the flames of witch hunts between the late 15th and early 18th centuries, in which an estimated 45,000 people were executed. You cursed brat! Look what you've done! I'm melting! Melting! Oh, what a world! What a world! Who would have thought a good little girl like you could destroy my beautiful wickedness? I'll put a link for Free Speech, A History in the episode notes on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. So if you do buy it, consider clicking through there. It gets me a little tip, and I like seeing the data. We are on the road to Plymouth. Those of you who can remember all the way back to the road to Plymouth Part 1, which you would benefit from hearing before this episode, will know that we are looking at the historical threads that will weave together on the Mayflower in the autumn of 1620. The first was the development of dissident sects, within English Protestantism and the politics of the late Elizabethan era that drove their persecution. We covered that in part one. The second thread was a growing English commercial interest in the northern eastern seaboard of the United States and Canada. John Smith of Jamestown fame was basically looking for a new gig and had made it his business to promote the area that he explored, mapped, and named New England. Third, Smith's captain, Thomas Hunt, would kidnap 27 Indians of the region in 1614 and attempt to sell them into slavery in Malaga, Spain. Some of them would be confiscated by local priests, at least one of them, an Indian with a great knack for languages named Tisquantum. Six years later would walk out of the Massachusetts woods speaking the king's English and save the pilgrims from starvation. Smith's campaign for New England is the main subject of this episode, with some digressions. 
Fourth, an epidemiological disaster in the mid-16-teens would shape the population and geopolitical landscape of the New England coast in such a way that in 1620, the pilgrims would find a virtually depopulated area with cleared but abandoned fields ready for farming. More importantly, the few surviving Indians in the region calculated that they would be better served by an alliance with the Plymouth colonists rather than fighting a two-front war against the powerful tribes to their west who had so far escaped old-world diseases. Fifth, the persistence and existence of the Jamestown settlement would enable Plymouth in various critical ways. My main references for this episode are John Smith himself, who wrote a tract called A Description of New England, or The Observations and Discoveries of Captain John Smith, Admiral of that country in the north of America, in June 1616, and Walter W. Woodward, who wrote an article in the March 2008 issue of the New England Quarterly titled Captain John Smith and the Campaign for New England, a Study in Early Modern Identity and Promotion. Today, Walter Woodward is a professor of history at the University of Connecticut and Connecticut State Historian. Longstanding and attentive listeners are familiar with John Smith's background and his Jamestown years. Apart from a cameo appearance meeting with Pocahontas in London in late 1616 or early 1617, which in real time occurred after the events of this episode, we parted company with Smith in October 1609 when he left Virginia for London, never to return. He'd been severely burned when his powder bag ignited while he slept, which may or may not have been accidental. The injuries were such that they put an end to any remaining desire Smith might have had to stay in Virginia after the arrival of the third supply that summer, which carried both the news that he had been demoted and several of his old gentleman adversaries from the first two ugly years after the establishment of Jamestown. He was also under something of a cloud, insofar as those same adversaries prevented Smith's departure for weeks while they took depositions and assembled evidence that would impugn him for alleged misconduct of various sorts. Smith survived both the burns and the largely manufactured accusations against him, but both must have taken some time. Smith would receive no further assignments from the Virginia Company, but he was an irrepressible adventurer and devoted himself to finding that new gig. The problem was there wasn't a lot of seemingly open space on the map of the Americas. Seemingly being a critical word insofar as the Americas remained thickly populated by indigenous peoples. The open space on the map was not actually really open per se, but in European terms, the question was whether another Christian prince had claimed it as territory and substantiated that claim by settling it. The Spanish, of course, had explored, claimed, and occupied most of the best parts south of Georgia, including Florida, Mexico, and the lands of the Gulf and the Caribbean. Big parts of South America were unoccupied by Europeans, but various attempts by French Huguenots and England's own Sir Walter Raleigh to establish positions on the Atlantic coast of that continent had failed catastrophically. It was just too far, and the route to and fro through Spanish shipping lanes was too dangerous. Meanwhile, Samuel de Champlain and his partners were digging in along the St. Lawrence, and as we saw last time, 
The future provinces of the Canadian Maritime were positively heaving with Europeans and Indians competing in the fertile northern fishing banks. North of Georgia, the Spanish asserted claims, but had not done enough to secure them, and the English were digging in along the Chesapeake. But the Chesapeake was Virginia Company territory and closed to Smith. That left the southern half of the region known until 1616 as Norumbega, the coast of today's Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and maybe Rhode Island and Connecticut. Sure, the Dutch had poked around on the lower Hudson and were trading for furs, but in 1613, Samuel Argyll had strengthened the competing English claim by forcing the local Dutch captain to acknowledge it. And yes, the French were trying to set up a base on Mount Desert Island on the coast of Maine, but Samuel Argyll had rather hilariously wrecked that attempt. So the map of Norumbega didn't have many flags on it. John Smith would never actually get another colonization gig, but would nevertheless spend the rest of his life promoting English settlement of the area. By 1614, Smith had secured backing from important English merchants for a voyage to the northeastern seaboard of today's United States and Canada. This expedition would have huge repercussions for English settlement of North America and might be plausibly seen as having had greater consequences for the history of the Americans than Smith's years at Jamestown. One of the reasons we know about Smith's voyage of 1614 is that he published a description of New England in late 1616, just as John and Rebecca Rolfe were arriving in London. Smith's tract, the first of six that he would write before his death in 1631, is part narrative, part promotion, and part business plan. We'll come back to all of that. Smith sailed with a bark and a bigger ship under the command of one Thomas Hunt, reaching the coast of New England in April 1614 at 43 and a half degrees, or roughly Saco Bay south of Portland on the Maine coast. The merchants who had funded the voyage wanted to make money, so they screwed around for a few weeks trying to hunt whales, and this is getting a little tedious at this point, find a gold mine. They did see some whales, but seemingly chased them ineffectually. They then pivoted to plan B, fish and furs, but, quote, the prime of both these seasons were past ere we perceived it, we thinking that their seasons served at all times, but we found it otherwise, for by the midst of June the fishing failed. Then the fishing picked up again in August. Tired at this point of fishing, Smith rounded up eight or nine sailors and began exploring in a boat, quote, Ranging the coast in a small boat, we got for trifles near 1,100 beaver skins, 100 martens, and near as many otters, and the most of them within the distance of 20 leagues. We ranged the coast both east and west much further, but eastwards, our commodities were not esteemed. They were so near the French who afford them better. And right against us in the main was a ship of Sir Francis Popham, that had there such acquaintance, having many years used only that port, that the most part there was had by him. Back to me, the coast explored and notes taken and furs and at least some fish on board. Smith took his bark back to England, arriving there at some point in September. 
Smith sent the other ship under Thomas Hunt to sail its load of dried cod in Spain, which Hunt did, but not before changing the course of history. Smith's description of New England begins as literally that, with the naming of the region and its relationship to other territories. Let's go to the original, but with minor edits for me to modernize Smith's words only when necessary to understand them. I find Smith's description, which is incredibly basic, interesting because it is incredibly basic. Even in 1616, nine years after the founding of Jamestown, Smith is writing for an audience with a very limited understanding of the Western Hemisphere, and he starts by naming the place that most Americans of European descent view as the beginning of it all. New England is that part of America in the Ocean Sea opposite to Novo Albion in the South Sea, discovered by the most memorable Sir Francis Drake in his voyage about the world. In regard whereto, this is styled New England, being in the same latitude. After typing out these first two sentences, my muse went nuts. So time for another digression. Long-standing listeners will be rolling their eyes, or probably in a few cases, joyfully applauding the Drake reference. You might be thinking that I'm reading this passage only because it mentions Drake. I might well do that, of course, but in this case, I shall forgive your cynicism because I actually have a purpose. Devoted and attentive listeners will remember the controversy over the location of Drake's Novo Albion. California patriots have long asserted that it was in the San Francisco Bay Area, but since at least 1913 have had to do so in the face of Zelia Nuttall's compelling evidence that Novo Albion was much farther north, perhaps in Oregon. We covered this controversy all the way back in the episode titled Novo Albion and Drake's Legacy. The well-informed John Smith seems to be making the same argument, at least implicitly. He says that New England lies at the same latitude as Novo Albion. Well, the southernmost reach of New England in southwestern Connecticut is at 41 degrees, which corresponds to far northern California. The part of New England that Smith actually mapped ranges between 44.5 degrees and 41.7 degrees, On the west coast, the same latitude covers the coast of Oregon, from roughly Portland to just south of the California border, roughly 270 miles north of so-called Drake's Bay. Now, we obviously don't know whether Smith was writing carefully or expansively when he described New England as the same latitude as Novo Albion. We do know, though, that by 1616, long after Elizabeth's death, The tightly knit and talkative explorer circles in London knew the true extent of the Golden Hind's exploration of the northwest Pacific coast, which, you will surely recall, had been covered up by Elizabeth in 1580 to obscure that Drake was looking for the western entrance to the fabled Strait of Onion, which would have worried the Spanish. Smith, who was a student of North American geography and very plugged in with the English community of explorers, almost certainly would have known that Drake had sailed much farther to the north than had been publicized in the 1580s. He might not have realized he was breaching Elizabeth's now 36-year-old order when he published a description of New England, and in any case, neither did the royal censors. If my observation is correct, Smith's description of New England supports the work of Zelia Nuttall, Melissa Darby, Samuel Balfe, and others who have argued against Novo Albion being in the area of San Francisco Bay. 
Special thanks, by the way, to Melissa Darby. She's the author of Thunder Go North, The Hunt for Sir Francis Drake's Fair and Good Bay, link in the episode notes, who did me the courtesy of reviewing a first draft of this section of the script and generously concurred with my take. Now for the bragging part. I did some digging around, and I believe I'm the first person to connect Smith's narrative to the controversy over the location of Nova Albion. So that's surely the first actually original history for the History of the Americans podcast. If I were an ambitious graduate student, which I'm not, I'd try to scrounge up a paper out of that. Now continuing with Smith's narrative and the actual subject of this episode, quote, New France, off of it, is northward. Southwards is Virginia and all the adjoining continent with New Granada, New Spain, New Andalusia, and the West Indies. Now, because I have been so oft asked such strange questions of the goodness and greatness of those spacious tracts of land, how they can be thus long unknown or not possessed by the Spaniard, and many such like demands, I entreat your pardons if I chance be too plain or tedious in relating my knowledge for plain men's satisfaction." Florida is the next adjoining to the Indies, which unprosperously was attempted to be planted by the French. A country far bigger than England, Scotland, France, and Ireland, yet little known to any Christian, but by the wonderful endeavors of Hernando de Soto, a valiant Spaniard, whose writing in this age is the best guide known to search those parts. Virginia is no isle, as many do imagine but part of the continent adjoining Florida, whose bounds may be stretched to the magnitude thereof without offense to any Christian inhabitant. For from the degrees of 30 to 45, his majesty hath granted his letters patent, the coast extending southwest and northwest about 1,500 miles. But to follow it aboard, the shore may well be 2,000 at least, of which 20 miles is the entrance into the Bay of Chesapeake, where is the London plantation, within which is a country, as you may perceive by the description in a book and map printed in my name of that little that I have discovered, may well suffice 300,000 people to inhabit. And southward adjoineth that part discovered at the charge of Sir Walter Raleigh by Sir Ralph Lane, and that learned mathematician Thomas Harriet. Northward, six or seven degrees, is the river Sagadahawk, where was planted the western colony by that honorable patron of virtue, Sir John Popham, Lord Chief Justice of England. There is also a relation printed by Captain Bartholomew Gosnold of Elizabeth Islands, and another by Captain Weymouth. Of course, devoted and attentive listeners knew all of that already. Smith and his eight or nine sailors traveled on a small boat 75 leagues, about 260 miles, along the New England coast from Penobscot Bay, just south of today's Bangor, to the lower bend of Cape Cod. They took soundings, noted the contours of the coastline, recorded the local names for places, and took a first inventory of the strategic assets of the region, from trees to fish to furs to minerals. From this, Smith drew a detailed map, not quite as good as Champlain's from his voyages of 1604, 05, and 06, but pretty good nonetheless. In consultation with Prince Charles, Smith's map assigned English names to places that were 
then known by transliterated Indian names. And the accompanying book provided a useful table across indexing the names. Among them is Plymouth, which the pilgrims who had Smith's map would use to name the place of their settlement in 1620. Smith goes on for pages describing the different species they saw and the tremendous capacity of the region to produce food. Having done this, he set forth a detailed business plan for colonization focused on the huge potential for a shipbuilding industry. England was increasingly deforested, and that made the building of ships far more expensive than it ought to be, and fishing. I'll put a link to the narrative in the episode notes, but Professor Woodward's summary captures the essence of it, which I will follow with a little commentary. Quote, Almost every paragraph of the book was crafted to loosen the purse strings of the avaricious and excite the imaginations of the adventurous. I am not so simple to think that ever any other motive than wealth will ever erect there a commonweal or draw a company from their ease and humors at home, Smith candidly admitted. And so he packed his narrative with hyperbolic descriptions of the region's potential. New England was a most excellent place, both for health and fertility, with soil capable of producing any grain, fruits, or seeds you will sow or plant. The air was temperate. The water is most pure. There were fruits of many sorts and kinds. The woods were well timbered with oak, and game was abundant. The region's iron ore was sufficient to support a shipbuilding industry, and although he was no alchemist, nor will promise more than I know, Smith was confident that precious minerals would be found there as well. Of all the four parts of the world he had seen in his lifetime, Smith proclaimed, I would rather live here than anywhere. Given their previous unfortunate experiences with underwriting colonies, including Smith's own in Virginia, English investors would have to be persuaded. Whereas earlier establishments may have proven to be financial sinkholes, Smith confidently asserted that if his proposed colony did not maintain itself, were we but once indifferently well-fitted, let us starve. Back to me. Well, Smith was most definitely an annoying person, just asked any of the Jamestown toffs. I think Professor Woodward is a bit harsh in his implicit criticism of Smith, just as many modern scholars are of Columbus's exaggerations. Smith, like Columbus, was an entrepreneur. He needed money to launch an enterprise, which he genuinely believed would be immensely profitable. As somebody who has both raised money for startups and seen a great many pitch decks asking for capital, I read Smith's tract as I would read a venture pitch, which is Actually, what it was, fundamentally true, but optimistic in almost every possible assumption. Smith understood his role, and we should not doubt that the wealthy Londoners to whom he was pitching a deal also understood theirs. That is why it must be said that Smith never got his new gig, but Englishmen of means would invest in New England colonization nonetheless. They liked Smith's idea but they were not persuaded that he was the leader to pull it off. On the coffee shops and salons of London, potential investors would have had conversations that sounded an awful lot like a weekly investment committee meeting at any decent venture capital firm. Regarding Woodward's claim that, given their previous unfortunate experience with underwriting colonies, 
English investors would have to be persuaded. I think he's overstating the reluctance of wealthy Londoners to invest in New World colonization. We know that they had been throwing prodigious capital at the Virginia Company, and in the fall of 1616, when Smith published his description of New England, there was actually a lot of enthusiasm for colonization. At that very time, the Virginia Company was parading John Rolfe and Pocahontas around, and Rolfe's tobacco was already turning a profit. If there'd been a bear market for New World investment because of the carnage at Jamestown, it was by then turning bullish. Smith understood that, which is why he rushed out his tract and sent a copy of it to Queen Anne, suggesting that she meet with Pocahontas. In 1616, Smith was hoping to be the proverbial fast follower, raising money on the perceived success of Jamestown, not in spite of its failures. Unfortunately for Smith, between the successful voyage of 1614, which consumes most of his definitely promotional narrative, and its publication in late 1616, he'd failed in two other attempts to get to New England in 1615 and 1616. In 1615, he was captured by the French near the Azores and imprisoned there, only to pull off one of his miraculous escapes. And in 1616, a third voyage had been battered by a storm just west of England and had to turn back. As a prospective leader, Smith not only had to overcome his well-documented lack of diplomacy and poor respect for the requirements of social class, but also the widespread sense that he just had bad luck. Indeed, a few years later, he would propose to the separatists in Leiden, the pilgrims who would sail on the Mayflower, that he be the military leader on their voyage. They turned him down, probably because they feared they would not be able to control him once they got to North America. But they did take his writings and map and hired the plucky but more tractable soldier Miles Standish to provide security. There were two other items from Smith's book that bear mentioning. The first is that his account describes a large population of Indians, the coast so well inhabited with a goodly, strong, and well-proportioned people. Even as Smith wrote those words, a pandemic was tearing through the indigenous population of the Dawnland, leaving the area of New England's Plymouth almost entirely uninhabited when the pilgrims would arrive only four years later. The second is his description of Thomas Hunt's dirty deeds, which would set in motion a chain of events that would both antagonize the Indians of the region and ensure the survival of that first colony of the second pilgrims. Hunt, Smith believed, had been against the colonization idea from the start because it would compete with established English fishing interests with which Hunt was aligned. Local settlements would seemingly have a huge advantage, being able to cut American trees and build ships cheaply that could then sail one way to England stocked with a dried cod that was in so much demand. Smith's somewhat paranoid denunciation of Hunt describes the key moment, quote, Though I have had many discouragements by the ingratitude of some, the malicious slanders of others, the falseness of friends, the treachery of cowards, and the slowness of adventurers, but chiefly by one Hunt, who is master of the ship, with whom oft arguing these projects for a plantation, however he seemed well in words to like it, yet he robbed me of my plots, 
and observations. Notwithstanding, after my departure, he abused the savages where he came and betrayed 27 of these poor innocent souls, which he sold in Spain for slaves, to move their hate against our nation, as well as to cause my proceedings to be so much the more difficult. One of those 27 Indians sold into slavery was a man named Tisquantum, known to every American of a certain age anyway as Squanto. That is a story we shall take up next time. By the 1620s, Smith would be too old to lead another colony in the New World, and he seems to have reconciled himself to that failure. He remained, however, the foremost booster of the land he had named New England and would write five more books before his death in 1631, promoting English colonization in the New World. Without Smith's voyage of 1614, his description of New England and its accompanying map and his failed fundraising project, the history of English settlement in the region would almost certainly have been profoundly different. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, which is a lot, and that you tell all your friends. Spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice. Write us a nice review on Apple. That really helps get the word out, by the way, algorithms being what they are. And subscribe in your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, you can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. And of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.